welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, friends, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, if you are new, we are rounding third base here uh, in our series on Hebrews, which means we're getting close to the end. If you're not a baseball player, I had this, like, small inkling to talk about a different metaphor, you know, like first base, second base, and then I was like, no, don't do it, don't do it. (laughs) I wish sometimes, do you ever wish sometimes people could, like, see the dialogue inside your head? Other times you're like, dear God, for the love, please no, right? (laughs) But sometimes it would be kind of interesting when you're in those conversations, you're like, what are you thinking? So, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, um... A couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, Jenna last week did a great job. We took a little break. We talked about Bartimaeus, uh, one of the stories in the Gospels. Jenna did a great job of exploring need and vulnerability and this guy who is just very honest. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about Hebrews chapter 9, which uh, holds a very important verse, one that says, uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. If you weren't here and you're a part of Awaken, I would encourage you to just circle back around on the podcast, not so that you can listen to more of me, but rather because that's a really important one, I think. And it's important for us to be able to work out how exactly does God, the God of love, require the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin? Um, A lot of people have a lot of questions about that one. So I offer just a few thoughts uh, on that. And uh, you may not agree with me. That's totally fine. I think it was one of those topics where it was like, here, what if it could be read this way? Uh, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, if you're interested. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 is sort of the culmination of a lot of the threads that we've been studying lately. So if you would stand and we will read the first part, about the first half of Hebrews 10, and then we'll jump in here. It says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came to the world, he said... Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then he said, here I am, for it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus now. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, speaking again of Jesus, here I am, I have come to do your will. For he sets aside the first law and sacrifices in order to establish the second. A human, a body, a living person doing God's will. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. Again, this is Jeremiah 31. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning in this place, uh, we bring ourselves as, as much as we can. Uh, we offer our hearts as authentically as we can and as honestly as we can. And we ask simply that you would be the good God who is revealed to us in Jesus, who says you are loved, you belong, all of this is for you. And so would you meet us where we are today? Would you encourage us? Would you call us into what it means to be more fully human as you created us to be, we pray, by the power of your spirit and all God's people said. Amen. You can have a seat there. Um, The Witham family, in particular, the Micah Witham family, uh, my wife and our three daughters, we are notoriously early. If you've ever invited us to your house for anything, there's a very real possibility that we have driven around your neighborhood (laughs) looking at houses. Because we're always early, like 10 to 15 minutes early, to the tune that our kids now know when we're driving around and we're looking at houses, one of them will chime in from the back, Dad, are we early again? We're always early. Like, it's a, I don't know, I don't know how people live otherwise. Like, people that are incessantly late, does anybody have one of those in their families? Are any of you those people? Okay. I don't get you. I seriously, I can't make myself be late to anything. So we got invited to a holiday uh, party at one point, and uh, we, we, of course, we were a little early, like 10 to 15 minutes early. And so we, we knock on the door, <clears throat> thinking we might, you know, be helpful for the holiday party. We knock on the door, and the door opens, and it was that awkward moment where someone, my sister-in-law, was looking at us like, what are you doing here? Uh, at, at which point, you know, we're kind of like, uh, hey, uh, is, it, is it Christmas, or did we get that date wrong? Uh, no, no, it's Christmas. Um, are we a little earlier? And, and we come to find out we had mixed up the time. It was like we came at, we thought it was four o'clock. It was actually a five o'clock dinner. So we were there an hour and 15 minutes early for this party. And um, it was awkward. It was really awkward, right? Like the table was not set. Like things were still being done. You know, like things were still being gathered. And it was one of those moments where you realize that the host and the hostess are not ready for you. I don't know if you've ever showed up to that party before. Maybe you didn't show up early, but you were uh, an unexpected guest or maybe even an unwanted guest at a party, 
right? And it was kind of that awkward, like, not everything is ready here, and the table, maybe metaphorically or literally, was not set for you yet. I want you to, is that like a shofar? Oh my gosh, that's awesome. We got to get Lalo up here next week. So I want you to hold on to that thought, okay, that image, that metaphor, that moment where you're looking and it's like, they are not ready for you. The table is not set for you. Um, This passage that we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews 10 is sort of, again, it's the culmination of a lot of things that have happened thus far in this book. And I want to just pull on three uh, threads. We could spend weeks in this one chapter, but I want to pull three major threads on this text. The first two are really about action and kind of what has been done. And the last one is sort of like the the so what or the implications of the first two. All right? So the first one, um, I would say it this way. The law couldn't, but Christ could. And this idea you find in the first ten verses, and maybe most specifically in the first four, but... What the law and the sacrifices, what the Levitical system of Israel, and what Israel couldn't do, Jesus has done, Christ has done. Which begs the question then, what was it or what is it that the law and the priests and this whole system, what is it that it couldn't do? What could it not accomplish? I want to suggest, and I think the author of Hebrews makes it pretty clear, that essentially it couldn't solve the problem or do away with the need for more sacrifice. So the law in the Levitical system, back in Leviticus, which is all about sacrifice and how the Israel is to worship, what it couldn't do was take away the need for more sacrifice. It couldn't actually heal the heart and cleanse the conscience. And in that way... The law actually is a placeholder, in effect. It's a placeholder in that it could only assure the people of their continued membership in covenant Israel. So essentially what the law could do was assure the people that they were in covenant with God, but it couldn't actually do away with the need for more sacrifice. This is what the author is saying. And what the law couldn't do, Jesus has done. And interestingly, it could only assure them covenant membership in Israel, covenant relationship in Israel, despite their sin. I mean, that's exactly what he says in verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sin. And the sacrifices were actually an annual reminder of the sin. So it could never do away with it. It could only, in spite of it, it was the way by which one knew they were in covenant with God. All right? Let me see if I can uh, get at this another way. Many of you know the car that I drive. You've seen me driving around. Uh, it's a Mitsubishi Montero, affectionately known as Monty. Now, Monty and I have a long relationship. I've had him for, uh, I, I want to say like seven years now or so. And uh, Monty uh, has bad belts. Now, if you're not a car person, there are, your engine runs and it has a wheel and there are belts connected to the wheel and it drives other things in your car. And when those things either get loose or old, they squeak. Has anybody ever heard me turn on Monty and just heard that thing squeal like a stuck pig? Yeah, Pat in the back, he's a mechanic. He's like, you know you can fix that, Micah. But seriously, sometimes, especially when it gets cold, he does not like the cold. I turn on Monty, and he just like, which requires me to like, you know, hit the throttle one time, which usually doesn't make it work. But a second time, I rev the engine and the belts go quiet. And if you're near the car or you've, you've never heard this before, it is quite alarming. Now, 
I'm not a car person. I'm not a detail person. I mean, I, I barely can figure out when I need to get my oil changed. But I have actually had my car in multiple times to have these belts fixed. There's a tension arm or something that you tighten. It makes the belts get tighter. I've had it in two different times to the shop to fix the belts on Monty. If I have to keep going back to the shop, the problem hasn't been fixed. Are you tracking? If you have to keep coming back to the temple for sacrifice, then the issue is not solved. That's essentially what the author of Hebrews is saying about the law. It was only a placeholder. And what it couldn't do, which is address this, is that what the kids do these days? Your heart. <laughs> now I'm going to do, uh, no, no. <laughs> I, once, I learned this one like gang sign. I went to a school that was quite interesting. But anyway, it couldn't, it, couldn't, it couldn't fix the problem. So essentially the author is saying what the law couldn't do, Jesus has done. And, and the psalm that's quoted in the first couple of verses there, at like 7, 8, and 9, is Psalm 40. And it essentially says, it lays out what God has always wanted, which scripture makes very clear. It says in verse 6 or verse 5, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And then later, I have come to do your will. What God has always wanted is a life given in offering to God, in response to God, and a yes to participation in the way of God in the world, the will of God, as it were. Repentance and forgiveness has always and will remain to be about our hearts, our lives lived in response to God, and a yes to participating in the way of God in the world. It's always about repentance and honest communication with God. So the author says, what the law couldn't do, Jesus has done. Addresses the heart matter, the heart issue, and offers a heal, a, the, the possibility of a healed heart and a clear conscience. So that's the first thread. The second thread is that the work has been done. The work has already been done. Verse 12 says, when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the scriptures in the story of God lead us to this point in history where Jesus, on our behalf, does something for us we could not do on our own. Jesus does the work. Jesus makes the sacrifice. Jesus defeats death. Jesus defeats evil. Jesus defeats sin. And then he sits down because the work has been done. Imagine, if you will, that this is my office, right? Ironically enough, I write sermons often right here. So imagine that this is my office and this is my desk, right? And I come to work and I'm like, you know, I got my lunch. I never make my lunch. But I come and I put it in there. And then I come and I, what am I about to do? Say it louder. Work, right? Because I sit down at my desk and so I'm about to work. It is important, this is something that we may just pass over and we miss. For the author who's writing into a first century audience, nearly every job required one to stand up to do the work. Right? They live in an agrarian culture. So almost all of the jobs are manual in labor, and you have to stand to do the work. Ironically enough, being a rabbi, you would sit down to do your work, but the author of Hebrews is not having a conversation about Jesus the rabbi. He's having a conversation about Jesus the prophet, priest, and king, all of which you stood to execute your role. 
So he says that Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, does this work and then sits down at the right hand of God, which is to say that the work has been completed. Pause for a moment this morning, 2015. I wonder if there are any ways in which we are living as if Jesus' work is not complete. Like things that we do to add to or to gain favor or to get blessing or to find acceptance or love or all of the work that Jesus has done. Are there any ways in which we live today as if Jesus' work wasn't done, where we have to add to it, where we have to do something Maybe I would just say this morning, you don't have, would you, would you close that door for me? I just keep hearing the screaming, you know, the wonderful, gleeful screams of children downstairs. <laughs> I kind of want to go down there just to like see what's actually, you got to pull it shut, the, it sticks on the carpet. It's an old building, 1938, you know, what are you going to do? Thank you, thank you, Aaron. Okay, focus, here we go. I might actually have ADD. Never been tested. Um, Are there ways in which we're living as if the work hasn't been completed? Where we come to a building like this because we feel guilty about that decision that we made or that marriage that fell apart or that choice that we made about that baby or that business partner that didn't work out or those parents who were never quite happy with whatever it was. And so we we do things in order to get, gain, approval, love, acceptance, favor, blessing from God. And ironically enough, here we sit in a building that is a symbol of an institution. And I'm not talking about Catholicism. I'm talking about the church, religion. We sit in a building that is a symbol of an institution that often says you have to keep coming back to to do these sacrifices, to participate in communion or to confession or baptism or... And ironically enough, people like me are the ones who dispense these things, and so you need me. You need us. You need the church. And I just want to stop this morning and remind you that the good news of Jesus is that the work is done. There is nothing you do that will add a breath, a layer, a nothing you do that will add anything to the fact that you are already loved and accepted and welcomed into the the, the embrace of the divine. That seems really, really basic. But I think the amount of people that I talk to and the stories that I hear, I think it's worth stopping and just saying, you know what, just for a moment this morning. And and if you were here last week, Louisa's poem, you are already so loved. You don't have to be from the right side of the tracks. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be white. You don't have to be straight. You don't have to have it all together. You are already so loved. And so whatever it is that you feel like you have to do, Quiet times were a great idea, but my gosh, they have just pinned so many of us down in guilt that I didn't spend enough time with God. Can I get an amen on that one? Jeez, youth pastors, get it together. 
Stop telling kids to do that. I would argue that you shouldn't read scripture outside of community. So don't hold yourself up in a, in, a, in a closet, you know, alone and read the Bible. It's a crazy book, and it's hard to understand sometimes. Read the Nephilim of Genesis and try to figure that one out. You should read it in community. Side note. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pray more. You don't have to read the Bible more. You don't have to come to church more. You are already. The work has been done. And God says to any and all, welcome, come home. So, the law couldn't do this, but Jesus has done it. And then he sat down because the work is done. Let me close with this. The last idea, this last thread is, essentially, so what? So now what? And maybe I would pose it as a question. How do we come then? If all of this is true, then what does that mean for us? And verse 22 is this beautiful sort of bulleted list of a couple of things that he mentions. The first one is, we come with a true heart or a sincere heart, your text may say. The word that's actually used here that's translated is aletheinos, and it's a Greek word. And uh, if anybody remembers Toph, previous staff member, his daughter's name was aletheia. Aletheia means truth. So the author says, you come with a true heart. This word refers to what is essentially true, and it connects the visible fact to the underlying reality. And if you remember, the author has just quoted Jeremiah 31, where, God, where it talks about God writing a new covenant on people's hearts, that God will write it on the flesh of their hearts, this new covenant. And there's this very real sense that the scripture reminds us of, that in all sorts of ways, you and I were created with an essence, a true nature about us, and we have sacrificed or we have betrayed that essence in exchange for other things that we think will satisfy, but in the end never do. And what if God is like the loving mother or the loving father who wants to give their child a gift? And the gift is not more rules and regulations and things you have to do, but actually a return to the truest sense of who you are. What if the gift of God returns you to actually the the essence, the very core, the, the best of who you are as a human being? That's what God gives. That's what Jesus offers. He says, follow me. And what you get in return is a a return to the truest sense and, and an increasing amount of more and more and more of who God made you to be. Not less of who you are. Not If you take away sin, do you become more human, more of who you are, or less? I would argue you become more and more and more and more of you, more and more of you, more of you. So you get... We come with a true heart, the author says. And then he says, we come with assurance of faith. Now, just briefly, if if I could like nerd out for a second on like theology, there are two theologians, I'll make this really short, there are two theologians that I would want to highlight right here. One is Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century, one is Karl Barth, he's a 20th century guy. Anselm wrote something, and it has been, it's been ringing through the annals of church history since he wrote it, and it was faith-seeking understanding, now, Bart grabs that, and it becomes the key that he wrote, like, the, most, the largest work of theology in, in the, the, the modern uh, day. It's called the Dogmatics. Faith-seeking understanding, he says, was the key to the whole thing. What does Anselm mean when he says faith-seeking understanding? He writes this. He says, uh, Nor do I seek to understand that I may believe, 
but I believe that I may understand. Essentially, he says, I don't, I don't seek to understand so that I might believe in God. But he says, rather, I believe in God so that I might understand God. I would say it this way. How do you expect to experience as real the God that you doubt exists? If you doubt that God exists, how do you... Faith, Anselm would argue, is the key that unlocks the door to knowledge and experience of God. The author of Hebrews says that because of the work of Christ, all that he's accomplished, we come with an assurance of faith because in faith we have a key that unlocks a door that opens up and what we find is the work of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, a priest no longer needing to sacrifice, the resurrection of Jesus that's defeated sin and death and evil. So we come with an assurance that faith gives, faith seeking understanding. We don't don't, uh, understand so that we might believe. He would say, no, it's the other way around. So for those of you who might have questions and doubt and skepticism, I would offer that as a possibility that faith actually is the key to experience and understanding of who God is. How do you expect to experience as real the God that you doubt exists? So we come with a true heart, assurance of faith. And then these last two, he says, hearts healed and conscience cleaned. This is the conversation about the sacrificial system. What the law couldn't do, Jesus has done, which is clear our conscience so that we can come clean before God. And then this beautiful picture of washed in baptism. Last summer, I had the privilege as a pastor to baptize my oldest daughter, Hadley, which was probably one of the highlights of my life as a pastor for lots of reasons, but one, because I was able to speak the words of my baptism over her and hers. And the words are, for we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. The author of Hebrews says, we come with a true heart, assurance of faith, with hearts and conscience healed and washed in baptism, that we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to, to, to live this new life in Christ. So chapter 10, friends, is a, it's sort of a, 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 a huge building block in Christian theology. And, and if this was a, in the deep end of the pool for some, I apologize. But hopefully, these, these ideas, man, if you don't get these, you miss the heart of what happens on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. So let me close with this. Every once in a while, we get to go to some friend's house, and they are named the Pattons. And the Pattons, uh, Becky and Rick, they, uh, this, this Rabbi Alan I've mentioned before, uh, they bring him in every couple of months. Um, he lives in Boston, and so every three, three or four months or so, we get to go to the Pattons' house. And we look forward to it like no other two days in our calendar. Um, I'm, I'm, for some reason, like it is, it's always the hardest to find babysitters for these two days. It's like something doesn't want us to be there. That's a whole other conversation. But we, we, we move mountains to be at the Patents. And typically I preach on Sunday and then I literally like drive to YZ to get there for lunch before the one o'clock study session starts. So usually if you've ever seen me on that day, I'm like, hey, thanks, amen, peace out, I'm gone. And I leave. 
Like, I love you all. I'm your pastor, but not today. I'm going. (laughs) And there is this anticipation that we have because we know that when we get to the patents, there is a table that has been set for us to feast and dine and live. And there are moments that have happened when we are with this group of people that have been life-giving for me and for Laura. There are words that have been spoken that have just incited incidents in our lives that have moved us in certain directions. The table at the Patton's is always set to feast and dine and live. And when you arrive, you know that that is what is coming. I want to suggest that the author of Hebrews is essentially saying that the table, the divine table, has been set for you to come and to feast and to dine and to live. And all of this theological stuff, which is really important and really technical in this book, it comes down to a moment when you recognize, I I pray and I hope that you recognize for yourself, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, that the divine table of God has been set for you. That the work that Jesus did has been done. And what is offered to you is life. Feasting and dining with the divine as you come. And it's through the door of faith. And so I would just offer that to you this morning. I don't know where we all come from on days when we get together. I'm always struck by that. And maybe you need to hear just stop, stop working, stop trying. Stop attempting to earn something that's already yours. It's already been deposited. So stop. The rules, the regulations, the religion, all of that, it leads to death, and it is not in the heart of God. What is leads to life, and it's grace, and it's gift, and it's yours. So sit down at the table and enjoy it. You don't owe anybody anything for sitting at that table. It's not tit for tat. It's not if you get invited there, then you have to invite them back. Right? It's grace. It's gift. I want to invite us to a time of silence as we close this morning, and we'll sing a few songs afterwards, but I'll invite the band to come and As we maybe ready ourselves for just a few moments of silence, uh, we do this because I recognize that there are all kinds of things that God does and says that are regardless, irregardless, I always mix that one up, of me. Like, many of you hear from God, and it's not during this time. And I'm grateful for that. Many of you hear God's voice in the silence. And this has been a part of tradition and a part of our history as people of faith to just stop long enough to hear our own breath and to hear what God might be saying. And so I guess I would just leave you with this prompt as you move into this time of silence. If you were to sit down today at that table, what would you receive? which is to ask the question, what do you need? If you were to sit down at the table with the divine...
What do you need? So let me offer a word of prayer and then a time of silence and Alia will lead us as we close. God, we come to you this morning into this place and for many of us there are lots of needs and we are very aware of them. In fact, some of us feel guilty or shame around those needs. For some, our hearts are so numb that we don't have access to even what those things are. And so God, I pray that in these next few moments of silence that you, the God of all creation, the transcendent and ever beyond us being would be imminent and present to us, with us, for us. That you would speak words that we need to hear that you would invite us into being more and more and more human and more and more and more of who we truly are. That we would know what we need and that you would give it to us. So here we are, God. And here you are. If you have need for prayer, um, for anything this morning, we have a prayer team that would be available. They would love to pray with you. My hope and prayer is that you go knowing that the love of God is already yours, that the work has already been done, and that we learn to live in light of that. Not looking for it, not trying to get it, but because it's already yours. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace. You can find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.